0: Well, in uh, in 2002, the Winter Olympics were held in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I, along with my mom and dad, had the succinct pleasure of to be there live and in person. And there are many things that I remember from that once-in-a-lifetime experience, but one of the things that sticks out the most to me was the opportunity to get to see Team Canada playing Team Czech Republic in ice hockey. And if, if you're a hockey person at all, we're talking uh, Team Canada captain Mario Lemieux against Team Czech, Czech Republic captain Jamar Jager. And Dominic Hasek is in net for the Czech Republic, and it was an amazing Game, but really the truly amazing thing about it all was the atmosphere. It was incredible that I think about two thirds of the people in attendance are Canadian, and it was an amazing um, experience. As Team Canada came onto the ice, everybody who was Canadian stood up and sang, Oh Canada, and the excitement was palpable. It was truly amazing, and as we go through life, we run into moments like this. Not always this extravagant, to be sure, but moments where the excitement and and the atmosphere is just so incredible that you can feel it in the air. These are incredible moments. Let me tell you, these moments, they have nothing, they have nothing in comparison to the glory of the Lord, nothing on the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you were with us here last Sunday evening, then maybe you too got a glimpse of that glory as, as Pastor Jason brought us to the throne of God. And everybody I've talked to about last Sunday has, has echoed the same feeling, that it was just a, a holy moment as we heard him reading these passages of Scripture that just brought us to the throne of God, and we got to see his glory. And he is gracious to give us glimpses like this of his glory now. But imagine, if you will, a long time Maybe your whole life where you don't get to see these glimpses of the glory of God. He's blessed us to be able to have these opportunities to come and to see His glory, even if they are just glimpses. But imagine not even having the opportunity to have that, to never get to experience the taste of the glory of God. Imagine that and and hold on to that for a little bit later. As you may know, as I'm sure you've heard already, today is an exciting day on the church calendar in that it is Palm Sunday. Today we celebrate, we remember the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem the last time before His crucifixion. And, uh, and we celebrate um, what is, com- is coming into Holy Week as we prepare For Easter Sunday. And as such, because of that, we're going to be turning to Matthew 21 this evening. And so I'd invite you to turn there with me. This passage is significant for today in particular because it is the telling of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And as you're finding your way uh, to Matthew 21, I'll give a little bit of context uh, because as I know you already know, Finding the context of our passage really helps us to fully grasp what's going on. And so let's take a look at what's happening leading up to chapter 21. And so uh, here we are. Jesus is waking, making his way to Jerusalem, and they're, they're heading there to celebrate the Passover. And this is a time when the Jews from all over get together, many of them in Jerusalem. And uh, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, to celebrate the calling of their forefathers out of slavery. And they're about to, uh, to look back on God's rescuing them from slavery in Egypt by way of a sacrificial lamb. And as we come into Easter next weekend, let's not miss the significance of this, that when Jesus, the very weekend that Jesus went to the cross to take uh, our sins. And to be that sacrificial lamb, he was about to celebrate, and he had just celebrated that first sacrificial lamb. And Jesus was trying. He was at pains to show his disciples what was about to happen. But it's become clear that that they're just not getting it. They're not understanding what he's saying. Here in in chapter 20, uh, verse 18, we see Jesus tells them exactly what's going to happen when, when he says this, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. See, Jesus tells them exactly what's about to happen, but they just don't get it. And we know this because immediately following Jesus telling them this, a woman, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, or James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, comes to him and asks him to make her sons great in his kingdom. And then the other ten get upset about this probably because they wanted to be great and have the sit on his right hand and on his left hand in his kingdom and then jesus calls them all over once again and he tries to set the record straight and he says in in 20 verse 25 jesus called to uh, them to him and he said you know that the rulers of the gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is trying to show his disciples that his kingdom is different, that his kingdom is not about physical power and authority, but it's about humility, about humility. And and that brings us up to chapter 21. And we'll we'll read starting in verse 1, but the focus of our time this evening will be on 12 through 16. So if you're able, I invite you to stand with me for the, the public reading of the Word of God. So follow along now as I read Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him and were followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And he said to, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? You may be seated. Wow. You feel that authority. You hear the passion in Jesus' voice here. See, today as we celebrate Palm Sunday, the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem, set your minds on the glory of God, Because that is what is depicted here in our passage. The coming of the glory of God into his temple. And this is significant because the people, the nation of Israel, had not experienced this glory of God for quite some time. If you'll recall, I asked you to imagine what it would be like never to get a glimpse of that glory. Well, this is the people of Israel who had not had that taste of glory for 400 years, 400 years of silence. Let me explain how we're going to work through the passage here this evening. See, overall, this passage is about the coming of the glory of God, or as I've titled my sermon, A Glorious return. There's a few things here I think we need to wrestle with. First, we're going to take a look at the relationship of the glory of God and His temple, such as why it left and then why it was returning. And second, we're going to look, look at the two responses of the people of God to that glory returning, and then finally, we'll look at the ultimate fulfillment of the glory of God. And so first, let's gain a little bit of deeper context here to understand what's going on here in Matthew 21, and to see this, we actually need to jump back some 600 years from before Christ was born to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, and I'm going to start reading in verse 11, just to give us a little bit of context here, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against the turning against turning to the Lord the God of Israel all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem the Lord The God of their fathers sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore... He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on the young men or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes and all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. So if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, you might be familiar with this. This is the account of the nation of Israel being carted off into exile in Babylon, well, they'll spend the next 70 years in exile. Something that you need to understand is that Jerusalem and the temple that is there is the very dwelling place of God. It's where his Holy Spirit dwelt on earth with his people under the old covenant. And God has made it pretty clear through the Scriptures so far that when He is present, no one can stand against His people. We saw it in the Passover, in the crossing of the Red Sea, in the coming into the Promised Land in Samson and in David versus Goliath and in so many more instances of God's glorious salvation for the nations of Israel. But that was the key. The fact that he, the Lord God, was with them. So it begs the question how could the temple of God be destroyed, be sacked, pillaged, burned, only if he wasn't there? In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 10, we read about how the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. handing his people over to the Babylonians just like he warned them that he would do. Now, as we've been studying for the last several months here on Sunday mornings, the people ultimately did return to Jerusalem and ultimately did rebuild the temple and reinstitute all of the sacrificial systems that had been lost. In fact, we heard just this morning from Pastor Dan, of the inauguration of that temple, that second temple. But here's the thing, the Holy Spirit, the glory of the Lord, never returned to that temple. Not, that is, for some 600 years, when Jesus, the Son of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, walked into the temple and came in glory. And he is so overcome with holy anger that they would dare defile the temple of the living God that he flips the tables, he drives them out, and in the Gospel of John we read that he even fashioned a whip to drive them out. Brothers and sisters, this is not some flippant event. This is the beginning of something so much greater. See, in doing this, Jesus is starting the process of changing the world. Indeed, just as he had flipped the tables, he was getting ready to flip the world on its head. See, for too long, the people of God had missed the point. They were meant to reach the nations, but they couldn't see past their own egos leaders of the people had just spent generations building up the religion around themselves, elevating themselves rather than God, and putting processes in place to make sure that they got more powerful and the common man was pushed down. And that's not to mention even uh, those who were cast out by society, the orphans and the widows, the lepers of the world. But the glory of the Lord had returned to change all of that. And so, now that we've looked at that relationship of the glory of God and the temple at its departure and now its glorious return, let us look at the two responses that we see here in our passage. And so I'll read again 12 through 16 in in Matthew 21. And Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise so in reading this passage, we we see it that it's split into two sections. Part one shows the coming of Jesus into glory. That's what we've just been talking about: this coming, this glorious return, and that's found in in verses twelve to and and thirteen. And then part two, uh, verses fourteen and six to sixteen, shows the people's response to that glory. And what we see is two distinct responses by two polarizing groups of people. The first group of people is the proud. The proud. and What we see is they cocoon back in on themselves. They set up defenses. They bristle at the glory of God. And the second group of people we see are the humble. We see that they, rather than putting up these defenses, they hit their knees and they praise. So we see that the proud protect. And we see that the humble praise when they're faced with the glory of God. This past week, on April 9th, was the anniversary of the Battle of Vimy Ridge. And now I'm sure all of you know that Vimy Ridge was a very key battle in World War I, one that histori- many historians say that actually solidified Canada as a sovereign nation. And it was this incredible battle. And one of the important things about World War I was it's known for its trench Warfare, where both sides dig out elaborate systems of trenches as defenses. In fact, um, to this day, the Canadian forces still train for trench warfare. As I said when I, uh, I preached last, I spent a little bit of time in my earlier years training as an infantryman for the Canadian Forces Reserves, and I learned how to dig trenches and how to defend them because the reality of it is, in an open field, It's just the best form of defense, and they work very well. In in World War I, on the Western Front, it was the trench systems that made for stalemates where neither side could gain ground, and when faced with the glory of God, the proud, as we see in our passage, dig trenches, and they set up defenses to protect that authority that they think they have. We see this here with the priests and the scribes. These groups of men signify the religious elite. And so when Jesus shows up to threat and threatens to tear down their imagined authority, they dig in and they fight back. And in verse 15 we read that when they saw the glory and the way that Jesus was regarding that lower class, they became indignant And they said, Do you hear what these are saying? The reality is, they couldn't see past their own egos. They could not bear the thought that someone might tear down the system that they had worked so hard to create. You see, God's glory displayed in Jesus signifies to the proud your time's over. Your time is over. It's God's turn. Interestingly, in the verses that follow in chapter 21 and then beginning into chapter 22, Jesus faces off with these religious elite and he tells them three parables designed essentially to say, for Jesus to say to them, listen, we, that's God, gave you your chance and you blew it. You made it about yourself rather than pointing back to me. But now I'm going to push you out of the way and I'm going to take the wheel now. But here's the thing. In the book of Matthew, the proud are not just the religious leaders. In fact, back in, in chapter 20, we see that very same word used to describe the religious leaders used to describe Jesus' disciples. Remember when we talked about the mother of James and John coming to ask Jesus to make her sons great and how the other disciples didn't like that very much. Well, in, in chapter 20, verse 24, it says that when the ten heard it, that's that this, uh, the mother had come to ask Jesus this request, they were indignant at the two brothers. That same word. And this is significant because if the disciples were able to walk with the living Christ and still miss the point, well, so can we. So can we. Honestly, this is my this is my struggle. See, in in my life, um, I've been generally speaking a rule follower, not perfect, obviously. But generally speaking, I seek to follow the rules. And as a result, it's taken me a long time to get my head around the gospel. It's taken me a long time to just get my mind about around um, Jesus doing everything for me. See, too often I try to justify my faith by my and my standing with God by the good things that I do. I look at all the rules that I'm keeping and... As, as my dad used to um, jokingly quip, I don't drink, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. And I used to to keep this idea of being the good kid so I can tell myself I'm doing pretty good in the eyes of God. Well, this is just my problem, right? You guys don't struggle with this? No, obviously. We all Struggle with this. We try to position ourselves as closer to God by putting on this show. We do, and when we're faced with the glory of God, we try to protect that imagined authority that we think we have. And rather than pointing everything back to God, we try to make it about ourselves. We even try to take credit for our own salvation, when in reality, everything that we have is given to us from God especially our standing with God. And brothers and sisters, there's nothing that we can do to earn standing with God. It's only by trusting in the sacrifice that Jesus made for us that we can dare to approach God. We would do very well to remember that. And I think that the reason that people bristle when they see the glory of God is because they see themselves for who they really are. Not the mask they wear, not the false platform that they've built up, but who they really are. And they get scared that they're going to lose what they hold dear. This is because the proud do everything with themselves in mind. Everything with themselves in mind. And this is all of us. This is all of us until the Holy Spirit changes our hearts. See, it even harkens back to that original temptation. You won't surely die. God knows that when you eat the fruit, you'll be like God. And Even Adam and Eve, who had very literally and obviously seen the power of God at work, uh, thought that life would be better if they could just make themselves like God. But how deceived were they. So this is how the proud respond. They try and protect. They try and protect. This leads us to the second group of people and their response. Second, the humble. And the humble praise. So who are the humble? I would say the humble are those who have a correct view of self. In other words, humility is knowing our station in relation to Almighty God. Humility is singing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And not singing it because you are the worst person to ever live, but because you've seen yourself in comparison to a holy God, and you now realize that all of my most righteous acts are just as filthy rags in comparison to him. The humble As represented in our passage are the blind and the lame and the children. These are the groups of people who have been cast out by society. They're viewed as second-class citizens. And what is their response to the glory of God? They worship. They worship Him by coming to Him for healing and by singing His praise. When you think of any epic battle scene that you've maybe seen in a movie or you've read in a book. There's always that one key scene, right, where the the camera pans across the front rank just before the, the battle is about to begin. And you see these little farm boys just quaking, scared out of their minds as they see the size of the opposing army. And they're just terrified. But then, Just in time, their champion arrives. This is Aragon standing on Helm's Deep. Just about, just before the orcs storm it in Lord of the Rings. And all of a sudden, they know they have their champion to fight for them. All of a sudden, they know that he will go before them. This is the result when the humble are faced with the glory of God. They now realize that they have a champion who will fight for them. They were down and out, but he is strong and he will fight in their stead. Even leading up to Jesus' coming into Jerusalem, he's trying to show his disciples their need for humility. Indeed, this is Jesus' message through the entirety of the book of Matthew. He's trying to tell his disciples and to teach them that without without him, without his father, they can do nothing. We can do nothing. Because this is true for us too. But here's the here's the ironic thing. How often do we try and build up our humility by ourselves? Isn't it ironic that we try to use our pride to become humble? We say, oh, well, you know, the good Christian thing to do is to be humble, so I'll make myself look humble by saying all these self-deprecating things around others, and then people will think that I'm a pretty humble guy. No, friends, we don't need to humble ourselves. All we need to do is to come and stand before the King of kings, and we will realize who we are in light of Him, and we will be humbled. When you let the Holy Spirit work in your heart, you come face to face with the King of kings, and you will be humbled. We'll see him as our champion and praise him. So these are the two main responses to the glory of God, the proud, protect, and the humble, the humble praise. I think uh, an amazing illustration of these two perspectives, these two groups of people is found in the characters of, of Samwise Gamgee and Gollum in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. See, whether you've seen the movie or whether you've read the book, books, these characters stand out. See, they're both in service of Frodo. They're both in service of the master of the ring, and, but each of them has wildly opposing motivation. See, Gollum, he cares only for himself. Everything he does is in order to try and get the ring back for himself. He cares not for the sake of the world or those around him. Sure, he helps he helps Frodo. He uh, he he sticks with him for a long time. Even looks like he's becoming his friend. But in the end, it's all to betray him so that he can take it back for himself. But Sam, oh dear Sam, his motivation is his master. See, everything he did was to advance his master's quest to lessen his his burden. Indeed, where Gollum is the characterization of pride, Sam, he's the characterization of humility. So now, are you here this morning or this evening and not sure which side of things you're on? You're, you're trying to figure out, am I, am I just trying to protect myself or am I trying to further my master's plan? Maybe maybe the litmus test for you might be to look at your prayer life. Is everything that you pray for just like, give me this, God, and give me this, God, and I want this, God, and, and will you please give me this? Or are you praying, God, show me your glory. God, whatever your will is, whatever your will be done. Or do you even pray at all? Are you trying to go through this life on your own strength? Brothers and sisters, that is not sustainable. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And do you realize that power that Jesus sent through his Holy Spirit? That very glory that was with the nation of Israel, when they conquered the promised land, that our our kids this morning in in TBC Kids, they were learning about the conquering of, of Jericho and how the people, all they had to do was walk around the city and shout and praise God and the walls literally crumbled because of the glory of God. That glory dwells within you. Dwells within us. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and His Spirit dwells within you? Let's lean into that power. Lean into Him. Look to Christ as our champion and praise Him. See, when faced with the glory of God, we all come face to face with who we really are. And so what will be your response? Will you try to protect your pride? Will you praise your champion? I pray that you will be with me praising him. Friends, when we look to Jesus as our champion, we can find our hope in so much more than this world. And this is because this glory that we see displayed in the temple, when Jesus returns in glory, is significant, it's amazing, it's great, but it's not final. No, it's just the beginning. See, when Jesus walked into the temple that day, the glory and the glory of the Lord returned. It was significant, but it wasn't the end. And we feel that, that it wasn't final, don't we? We feel that when we battle sin within ourselves. We feel that when we feel pride welling up within us and we want to bristle at the glory of God See, our tendency is to want to do things for ourselves even when we know better but when Christ returns again oh what glory Ready to do away with our sinful nature, ready to do away with our pain and suffering, ready to do away with all that does not honor God, even death shall be no more. What a glorious reality. See, this coming weekend, we remember the work of Jesus on the cross, we remember his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And it's through the cross that Jesus, our champion, went to battle against sin and death. And here's the great, glorious news. He won. He won. Because He's victorious, we know that one day He will come again in such glory that things will be made new forever. And we will spend eternity in glory with him and so what will you do when you're face to it, face with that glory will you try to stand toe to toe with the king of kings or will you stand behind your champion knowing that he's going to go before you and he has already fought the battle against sin and death and he has already won Will you come to him? You can. If you're here this evening and you haven't, you can. Just pray to him. Just pray to him. Say, Jesus, when I see you, I know that I do not measure up. I know that I'm losing this battle with sin, but I know that you already have won. I want to stand behind you, my champion. I want to follow you. Curtis, you and the band can come on back up. We're going to close out our service now with a response. A response to that glory by praising His name. Let's humble ourselves, realize who we are in light of Him, and praise Him praise his name, and singing about that glorious day when Jesus returns. Let's pray. Oh, Father, oh God, our Father, we see your glory. Thank you for giving us even glimpses of your glory now. But oh Lord, we, we longingly wait for your return. Come Lord Jesus. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses lord as we forgive those who trespass against us lead us not into evil not into temptation and deliver us from evil for yours is the power the kingdom and the glory forever and ever and all God's people said, amen. Amen.